Thank you, David. I'm going to focus in this paper then on the Apostle Paul and his relationship to Abraham in the context specifically of the promises that Abraham received from the Lord which are recorded in the beginning of Genesis chapter 12 which Philip uh, very helpfully started us off with uh, yesterday morning. What I'm going to argue is that those promises in Genesis 12 are foundational to Paul's ministry to the Gentiles. It was those Abrahamic promises understood in the light of the revelation of Christ which drove Paul's missionary zeal, shaped his missionary strategy and defined both his approach to the mission that Christ had given him and the goal toward which he strove. Paul understood his apostolic commission in terms of the fulfilment of the patriarchal promises that God had made 2,000 years beforehand. And as he sought to fulfil that commission, he did so believing that he was an instrument in Christ's hands to bring those promises to fruition and consummation. Now, I don't think I'm going to say anything particularly new in this paper, but I hope uh, by examining Paul's ministry in the terms that I've just set out, to illuminate our understanding of his work and of his writings and to provide us at least with a fresh, if not a new, perspective on the Apostle. I want to draw some practical consequences from this manner of viewing Paul, particularly in the area of mission and evangelism, where I believe a better grasp of Paul's theological rooting of mission in the promises to Abraham will enrich and motivate our missionary and evangelistic work and that of our churches. To do that, I'm going to examine four passages, two of them from Paul's letter to the Romans, and one each from Galatians and Ephesians. Each of these passages, I hope, will highlight a different aspect of Paul's understanding of the mission to the Gentiles in the context of the Abrahamic promises. Let me first say a word, though, about terminology. Everybody else has done it, so I don't see why I shouldn't. Paul's term in Greek, ta ethne, is generally translated in our versions as the Gentiles. That's the term generally used. Ta ethne is generally used in the Greek Old Testament uh, to translate the Hebrew term goyim, which is used, of course, of the non-Jewish nations. And in the New Testament, the phrase ta ethne is often used in contradistinction to hoi eudaioi, the Jews. Okay, so that's fine to that extent the translation Gentiles is fine. But I think it's not entirely satisfactory. You just think about it for a moment. The word in English, Gentiles, is the plural of Gentile, which denotes an individual who is not a Jew. Ta ethne, by contrast, is the plural of the word ta ethnos, which is a neuter word denoting not an individual, but a tribe or a people or a nation. And so the plural term ta ethne denotes not simply a group of individuals who happen not to be Jews, but rather, at least often, a collection of peoples or nations, usually, of course, excluding the Jewish people. So I think the effect of Paul's term in Greek is maybe somewhat different in nuance from that of the English term, the Gentiles, which we're so um, used to using and seeing in our English Bibles. Now, it's true, context is everything, so sometimes in the context of Paul's argument, 
Um, I think does just mean the Gentiles. He's just talking about collections of Gentile individuals. But I think sometimes in other contexts, his usage definitely indicates uh, that 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 tribal or ethnic sense of the word uh, is retained, and that's missing if we just translate it as the Gentiles. I think that's particularly the case where we're talking about, where he's talking about the fulfillment of the Abrahamic promises, which is, of course, the subject of this paper. Um, and, And those promises, of course, refer to God's blessing on all the families of the earth. And so, I'm going to be using uh, different terms often to translate Paul's term ta'ethne in this paper. I'll sometimes talk about the peoples. I'll talk about the nations. I'll sometimes talk about Gentiles um, just because, just for variation. But notice, look out for here the words peoples and nations as a translation of that same word. So I'm going to start in Romans 15. And you might want to have the text open um, as we look at these different passages. If you're like me, which you may well not be, but if you're like me, Romans 15 is relatively unfamiliar compared perhaps with Romans 1 to 8. Um, I think for a long time I felt Romans 1 to 8 were the really important bits of Romans. I still think that to some extent. Um, 9 to 11 is there because it's kind of interesting and nice and controversial. 12 to 14 is practical. And then the sort of things peter out after that, don't they? Um, You know, you get a bit of sort of travel information in chapter 15 and greetings and then, you know, that's where you stop preaching, isn't it? Um, At that point. Actually, I think, having looked at it a bit more closely, uh, chapter 15 from verse 7 is crucial Uh, or at least from verse 8, is crucial uh, for our understanding of Paul's ministry and of what he is all about. So I want to spend a little bit of time in this passage from verse um, 8 through to the end of chapter, no, through to chapter 15, round about verse 21. And I want to draw four points from it. Now, I've put the Greek up. You don't need to follow the Greek, um, but it's there in case you find it useful of uh, various parts of this chapter. So uh, he starts in verse 7 and and 8 of speaking of Christ's ministry, particularly in in verse 8. In verse 7 he says, Therefore welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. He's obviously been talking about practical issues of causing tension between um, the Christians in Rome and he wants them to therefore accept one another as Christ has accepted them. Um, And then he talks about Christ's ministry. He says the nature of Christ's ministry requires this mutual acceptance. He says that ministry in the second half of of verse 8 was directed to the circumcision. Christ became a servant to the circumcised so that the promises to the fathers might be established or fulfilled. But then in verse 19, you notice he speaks of the nations, the Gentiles, glorifying God for his mercy. And then he follows that with a string of quotations from the Old Testament in verses 9 to 12. Now, what's the precise connection between verse 8 and verse 9 in Paul's thought, between Christ's ministry to the Jews in verse 8 and his ministry to the nations in verse 9? I think the best way of taking it Uh, is to view verse 9a um, as a purpose clause 
which is parallel to that of the second half of verse 8. So it's not all going to be like this, but um, just, this is just worth focusing on for a moment. Um, so you've got two purpose clauses there, and I'm saying they are in parallel to one another. The first, one, first purpose is to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs. The second is that the Gentiles might glorify uh, God. So Christ's mission uh, to the circumcision then has these two expressed purposes. Okay, so it's Christ's mission to the circumcision, but it's got these two purposes, one in relation to the patriarchal promises, the other in relation to the, to the nations. And John Murray, I think, convincingly argues in his commentary on Romans uh, that the strong connection between uh, these clauses indicates clearly that Christ's ministry is one ministry. His ministry to Jew and his ministry to Gentile is one ministry. It's not two separately directed ministries. The reference in verse 8 to the circumcision and to the promises to the fathers indicates the Abrahamic covenant, he argues, I think rightly, confirmed, of course, by circumcision, but which, as we've heard and as Paul has argued earlier in the letter, uh, that covenant was made while Abraham was still uncircumcised. And that covenant included the promise of blessing for all the families of the earth in chapter 12. So Paul is indicating here, it seems to me in these two verses, that the Gentile experience of God's mercy, verse 9, is part of Christ's ministry to the Jewish people, the circumcision, verse 8, in fulfilment of the Abrahamic promises. Jew and Gentile are both recipients of the one ministry of Christ. And that's totally in line with Paul's argument in the rest of the letter. In chapter 3, verse 22, he said, there is no difference, meaning there's no difference between Jew and and Gentile, all are sinners, all are saved in the same way. As Calvin puts it in his commentary here, he says, Christ had gathered both Jew and Gentile from their pitiable scattered state, and having gathered them, brought them into the kingdom of his Father to form one flock in one sheepfold under one shepherd. So that's the first point uh, from these verses about Christ's ministry directed to Jew and Gentile. And then secondly, Christ's ministry, we see from Paul's quotations, is firmly rooted in the Old Testament. So he gives us quotations from Deuteronomy, from the Psalms, from Isaiah, to provide biblical support for his understanding of God's plan of mercy to the nations. And of course, these are, these are sample verses, aren't they? Paul's simply demonstrating by these examples that it's always been part of God's plan for the world to bring blessing and mercy to the nations. Many other Old Testament passages that he perhaps could have quoted in support. Psalm 96 that was read earlier would have been one. Or take Psalm 22, verse 27. David says, All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. Psalm 86, verse 9. All the nations, ta'ethner in the Septuagint, you have made, shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name. We see the same message in the prophets, particularly Isaiah. In chapter 2 of his prophecy, he records how the word of the Lord came to him, uh, speaking of the nations flowing to the mountain of the house of the Lord in the latter days, and the peoples exhorting one another to learn the ways of the Lord. So many passages, aren't there, in the Old Testament uh, in, in, in similar vein, and Paul could have, I suppose, pointed to any of them in support for his 
uh, argument here that Christ's mission is a mission to the nations. Thirdly then, in verse 15, uh, Paul turns to consider his own ministry. He's considered Christ's ministry. Now he looks at his own ministry. Talks at the end of verse 15 of the grace uh, given to him. I want you to notice here the Old Testament language that he uses to describe his ministry to the nations. So he speaks here of the grace given to me by God that I should be, he says, a a leiturgon, a a, a cultic servant of Christ Jesus to the nations. There's that phrase, esta ethna. Then he uses a a verb, a participle, hierurgunta, being a priest or or, um, conveying in a priestly manner uh, the good news of God to euangelion to theu. Uh, so that the offering, there's another Old Testament uh, word, prosphora, uh, sacrifice or offering, uh, so that the offering of the nations, tonethnon, should be pleasing, uh, made holy, hergiasmene, uh, by the Holy Spirit. So that, those few words is uh, full, aren't they, of Old Testament language deliberately used by Paul in, in, in characterizing his ministry to the Gentiles. Uh, and I think that's deliberate on his part, and it's remarkable. And he's not simply um, having a bit of literary fun. This is theological. He's rooting his understanding of his own apostolic ministry to the nations in the vocabulary of Old Testament priestly service to God. The nations themselves, he says, are a holy offering to God. That's how I take uh, what he says there. Paul is the priest of Christ who makes that offering to Christ or to God. Paul's understanding then of his Gentile ministry as a commission specifically given to him by Christ is clear also from his letter to the Galatians. You can look at that in chapter 2, verse 7, for example, of that letter. Uh, It ties in with his account to King Agrippa in Acts of his conversion and his call on the road to Damascus, where Christ told Paul that he was sending him to the nations to open their eyes, to turn them from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, that they might receive the forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith. I think most strikingly, perhaps, is what he says um, after preaching in the synagogue at uh, Antioch in Pisidia, in Acts chapter 13. Uh, we read in verse 44 that the whole city gathers together almost to hear the word of the Lord. Uh, The Jews become jealous. Verse 46, Paul and Barnabas speak boldly uh, to them. It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you since you thrust it aside. Judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we're turning to the Gentiles. Verse 47 is interesting, isn't it? For so the Lord has commanded us, saying... I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. How do we take that quotation there? Uh, It could be just that he is referring there to uh, God's commission to, to Christ, to the Christ. But I think there's more than a hint there that Paul is, is, is applying that verse to himself. Not in a primary sense, of course. The primary sense is is speaking of Christ. But in a secondary sense, 
that he and Barnabas and others who preach uh, in this way to the Gentiles are alight as they preach Christ. So Paul sees his commission to preach to the nations in this uh, extraordinary Old Testament way, in this liturgical priestly uh, manner. And then fourthly, um, Paul makes an extraordinary claim about the fulfilment of his ministry within a wide geographical area uh, in verse 19. He talks about the results of his work so far. He says that from Jerusalem and round in a circle until Illyricum, he says, I have fulfilled the good news of Christ, literally. Peplero I to euangelion to Christu. Um, thereby aiming to evangelize not where Christ was named so that I should not build on another's foundation. Now the impact of Paul's terminology there in that phrase, Peplero I to euangelion to Christu, I think it's somewhat blunted in our English translations. ESV says, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. The NIV says, I have fully proclaimed the gospel of Christ. The AV says, I fully preached the gospel of Christ. I think those all bring out something of Paul's meaning, but in doing so, I think they, they do blunt the immediate impact, where he says, what he actually says is, I have fulfilled the gospel within the regions that he identifies. And that's quite a startling claim. No doubt it is through preaching that he achieves that fulfilment. But his primary reference, I would argue, seems to be to the fulfilment of the commission that Christ has given him. I think he makes a similar claim in his letter to the Colossians, chapter 1, verses 25 and 27, where he talks about his ministry in terms of fulfilling the word of God in relation to the Gentiles. So there's a sense of fulfilment, completion of uh, the gospel in his ministry. Paul then is Christ's priest to offer the nations to God. And he says, from Jerusalem to the shores of the Adriatic, he has achieved this and discharged his holy duty. Now, as he goes on to talk to, to inform the Romans in the letter, he must move still further westwards, therefore, to Spain to discharge his responsibilities there as well, verses 24 and 28. Now, Paul, of course, doesn't think that uh, the work of the gospel is exhausted in those areas or that there's no need or no room for other preachers to evangelise there. He's saying that he has fulfilled his distinct commission from Christ in the terms of the, the, that we've been discussing, uh, which, as he says in verse 20, focuses particularly on making Christ known where he had not previously been heard of. And in that sense, he has fulfilled the gospel in those regions. Paul then understands his own evangelistic ministry to the Gentiles as very much more than simply taking good news to everyone that he can reach in the way that perhaps we view evangelism and mission today. For Paul, Gentile mission was deeply rooted in God's promises in the Old Testament, particularly in the patriarchal promises. And it was part of Christ's ministry. And now after the resurrection and ascension, it is specifically Paul, he says, who is commissioned in this priestly manner by Christ to discharge this God-initiated and God-planned ministry of making the nations a holy offering to the Lord. And at the point of writing to the Romans, he considers himself to have discharged that commission in the east and he's turning his sights to the west, particularly to Spain. So that's Paul's view of his own 
ministry to the Gentiles. That's how he saw it, I argue. Let's turn then to Galatians and ask, how did he see the connection between that mission, the mission to the nations, and the promises to Abraham? What precisely in his mind is the connection? Uh, This will be uh, fairly familiar, I think, to you, but let me just take us through it. Chapter 3, verse 8 of Galatians. Paul here quotes the promise to Abraham uh, that all the peoples will be blessed in you, as he uh, translates it. Uh, That is in Abraham. Uh, Paul's quotation, in fact, seems to conflate uh, the promise in 12.3 of Genesis with that in 18.18. Paul uses the term uh, pantata ethna, all the peoples, whereas Genesis 12.3 talks about high fuli, the the tribes, a different word, Uh, but uh, 18.18 of Genesis in the Septuagint does use the term ethna. But uh, as he quotes this promise, Paul seems to be clearly indicating the link in his understanding between the Abrahamic promise and the mission to the nations. Now, Paul characterizes the Abrahamic promise in Galatians 3 as an instance of pre-evangelism, not perhaps in the way that we think of pre-evangelism. There is the word somewhere uh, in line 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, line 6 on the screen, pro-euangelisator. Uh, evangelized beforehand, brought the good news beforehand. So the gospel was preached beforehand to Abraham. Uh, I think you can take that in one of two ways, or maybe both of two ways, I'm going to argue. Um, Firstly, that God promised Abraham that this gospel would come to the nations. So the promise, in other words, is a prophecy about future events. Paul makes the same point at the start of his letter to the Romans, where he writes of the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Writings, a gospel that he goes on to say in chapter 1, verse 5, which was for the obedience of faith amongst all the, pe- all the peoples. So that's one way of taking it. Um, Paul's preaching of the gospel then amongst the nations was something which God had promised to Abraham would happen. Abraham and the prophets knew that God would justify the nations by faith, Galatians 3, verse 8. But I think there's a second sense in which we can take this phrase, preaching the gospel beforehand to Abraham, which is in the sense uh, that Abraham himself was a beneficiary of the gospel because he himself believed and so was justified by faith without works, as we've heard earlier today. Paul argues in Galatians 3 that the blessing comes by faith to those who share the faith that Abraham had. And the specific content of the blessing then What is this blessing? What does it mean to receive this blessing? Paul argues that the content of the blessing is is justification, the conferral of a righteousness from God received by faith, in which connection he quotes the assertion in Genesis 15, verse 6, that Abraham too was justified by faith. So the gospel which Paul now preaches amongst the nations is in terms of its content the same gospel which Abraham knew and believed. So faith is the instrument by which these blessings and specifically the blessing of justification uh, are received from God's hand. And if justification is is its principal content, what is the mechanism, if you like, by which God has made these blessings available? Uh, Paul argues it's, it's the atonement for sin which Christ made by becoming a curse for us on our behalf. Galatians 3 verse 13. 
It's by that means, argues Paul, that the blessing of Abraham comes to the nations, that they are justified by faith. More precisely, he says in verse 14, Christ was made a curse so that the blessing of Abraham might come to the nations in or by Jesus Christ. Here then is the great principle at the heart of Paul's understanding of the Abrahamic promises. Those promises are fulfilled for the nations in Christ. It is Christ and his work, specifically his death on the cross, which operates to bring Abraham's blessings and specifically the blessing of justification to the nations. So Christ and his death and the message of justification by faith alone lie at the very heart of Paul's missionary theology. And as we've heard already, Paul underlines the centrality of Christ to his entire scheme by demonstrating in chapter 3 that the true beneficiary of the promises of Abraham is Christ. Without endorsing everything David said earlier about the consequences of that for baptismal theology. But the true beneficiary of the promises of Abraham is Christ, as it is he who is the true offspring that was promised to the patriarch. He achieves this by the well-known argument based on the distinction between the singular and plural forms of the word for seed or offspring, sperma. So it's not through the Mosaic law that the blessings of Abraham come, but through faith in Christ. And so it's all those who trust in Christ who are the sons of Abraham and hence rightful heirs of the promises. So the categories, he argues at the end of chapter 3, the categories of Jew and Gentile are no longer of relevance. The vital distinction now is between those who have faith in Christ and those who do not. You are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. There is neither Jew nor Greek. You are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. So in Paul's thinking, the promises to Abraham are fulfilled in the nations by the death of Christ on the cross as a curse, and they belong to those Jew or Gentile who have faith, and by that faith, through the death of Christ, they are justified. So that's the, um, the, 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 the connection, if you like, in Paul's mind between the Abrahamic promise and the mission to the nations. But what's the effect? What, what's the effect then of, this, of these promises made to Abraham coming to the nations through the preaching of Christ's Minister Paul. Well, for that we turn to Ephesians. Second half of chapter 2, first half of chapter 3. And again, there's nothing new here, but I just want to link all these things together in your mind to draw some conclusions for our own day. So we see here what an earth-shattering change has taken place with the coming of Christ for the nations of the world. Paul begins in uh, chapter 2, verse uh, 11 and 12, reminding his Gentile, mostly Gentile readers, of their hopeless condition before Christ came. They were separate from Christ, he says, excluded from citizenship in Israel, foreigners to the covenants of promise, without hope and without God in the world. We often, I think, read that, perhaps preach it as speaking of the uh, experience of the individual before he comes to Christ, which is no doubt true. But Paul's um, reason for writing those words is much, much deeper and broader than that, isn't it? He's talking about the whole condition of the world 
except for the Jewish people, before the coming of Christ. And it was a parlous condition, without hope, cut off, no share in the covenants. But now, he goes on, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ. And of course he goes on to explain uh, how it is the blood of Christ that has brought together Jew and Gentile, broken down the dividing wall of separation and through which both Jew and non-Jew approach God. And so he concludes in verse 19, we are no longer foreigners and aliens, sorry, you are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household. Now, I think one of the problems we we face is that we're so used to this. We're so used to being Gentile Christians um, that these words don't have the impact that they had for Paul and presumably for his readers. He's he's describing here, isn't he, an earth-shattering transition from being utterly outside the covenant to being members of God's household. And he um, explains it further in the language of Old Testament temple uh, terminology Um, at the end of the chapter, verses 21 and 22, uh, the believing peoples now form part of the holy temple in the Lord, built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. And then you've got the strong impression at the end of chapter 2 that Paul thinks he's finished that subject, and he's now going to pray. But he can't help himself, can he? He he mentions the word Gentiles at the end of verse 1 as he begins to pray, and, and off he goes again, because he is so taken up, he's so overwhelmed by this thought that Christ has commissioned him to take this good news to the world, to the nations. And so the mention of the word nations, as he begins his prayer, sparks him off again. And he begins to talk then about the mystery, verse 3. One of his favourite words, of course, in this context. Uh, He describes the mystery in verse 6 as that Uh, through which, uh, sorry, as that through the gospel, the nations are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together in the promise in Christ Jesus. So this mystery, he says, is something which was previously hidden, but has now been revealed. Um, Verses 4 and 5, he says, it's the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to men in other generations, as it has now been revealed uh, by the Spirit, it says the similar thing in Colossians 1.26 and at the end of the letter to the Romans. When you ask the question, what precisely is the content of this mystery, Paul? Um, it is a little difficult, I think, to pin down. Paul uses the term in slightly different ways in his different letters. Um, N.T. Wright, in his most recent work, um, says that in several of his own uses of the term, Paul seems to mean something like a penetrating insight gained through a combination of scripture and reflection on the gospel. That's in Paul and the Faithfulness of God, page 1,233. I haven't read the previous pages, 1,232 pages. I've just read, just read the chapter on this issue, which is itself about 250 pages long. He says... Um, The the word mystery does not indicate a new doctrine so much as a new angle of vision on something that's already known, rooted in Old Testament scripture. Uh, So here in chapter 3 of Ephesians, Wright says that what he says, uh, what Paul says flows out of what he's already said in chapters 1 and 2. He says this is not a new point, uh, 
but a drawing of attention to the depth and power, to the heaven and earth nature, the fresh revelation of the point just made. Um, I agree with that up to a point. Um, The focus of the mystery is certainly Christ. Commentators generally agree on that. Uh, In Colossians 2 verse 2, Paul talks about the mystery of God, namely Christ. And certainly his focus in all the passages about the mystery is, is Christ as the one through whom the nations receive the blessings promised by God. But Paul says the mystery was previously hidden. But he also makes clear that not everything was hidden. More than once in his letters, he tells us that the gospel had been promised and witnessed and announced beforehand. So that doesn't sound like it was hidden. You see that in Romans 1 verse 2, 321, Galatians 3 verse 8. So it's clear, it's clear I think also from what Peter says in his first letter, uh, chapter 1, that the Old Testament prophets knew a great deal. They knew that Christ would come, they knew that he would suffer, they knew that he would be glorified. Uh, but there were things also they didn't see clearly. Paul, I think, argues that uh, the Old Testament teaches the revelation of the righteousness of God. It teaches justification by faith. It teaches the, uh, about God's plan to bless the nations, the coming of Christ, his sufferings and his glory. All those things can be found clearly in the Old Testament, according to Paul. And they amount to the proclamation of the gospel to Uh, Abraham to the nations in advance but there were these hidden elements the mystery and I think that relates to precisely how this would take place how would it be that the nations would come to share in these blessings and particularly the fact that it was through the death of the Messiah and by faith in him that the nations would become heirs together with the Jews on the same terms and in the same way of the promises of God Nations would be saved then without having to become Jews, an issue that occupies, of course, a great deal of the writings of the New Testament. Uh, It seems to me then if we want to isolate what was the content of the mystery as opposed to what was previously proclaimed, uh, it needs to be situated in in that area. So the promises to Abraham were to be fulfilled in the nations through the death of Christ on the cross by faith in him, by the incorporation into Christ of all who trust in him, whether Jew or Gentile, as the people of God. Fourthly, how does it all end? Romans chapter 11. Let me just say a word briefly about how Paul sees the mission to the nations reaching its goal. What is the goal? Uh, The obvious place to turn to is verse 25 of Romans chapter 11 where he talks about the fullness of the Gentiles top pleroma tone ethnon Uh, you'll note earlier in the verse the the presence of the word mystery Uh, Paul of course has been expounding God's plan whereby the nations are grafted into the olive tree during the period of Israel's disobedience which in verse 25 he calls the hardening in part that has come to Israel Back in verse 11, he had explained how Israel's transgression had led to salvation for the nations. In verse 13, he refers again to his particular ministry to the nations. And then in verse 25, he seems to say that this period of Gentile mission and Jewish hardness will continue until the fullness of the nations comes in. That phrase is not one that he uses precisely elsewhere. 
but I think it's fairly clear that what he has in mind is the full number of the elect amongst the Gentile nations coming to faith in Christ and salvation through him. Coupled with his view of his own ministry as being, as he says in Romans 15, for the obedience of the nations or for the obedience of faith amongst all the nations. The word fullness in verse 25 of chapter 11 seems to me at least to be redolent of large numbers. Paul is not envisaging just a few saved here and there in every nation. He seems to be looking forward to a large harvest of souls across the globe such that he can use a term like fullness or speak truthfully of the nations becoming obedient to the faith. So, although Paul does seem to envisage times of severe suffering coming upon the church towards the end, he also seems to be saying at the same time that we should expect to see large numbers coming to Christ from all the various peoples of the world. And uh, I believe he makes the same point about the Jewish people. In chapter 11, he speaks of Jews being converted throughout the gospel age, but it does seem to me he speaks of a much larger ingathering at the end of that age, for which he also uses the term fullness in verse 12. No wonder then, as he contemplates this vast ingathering brought about by the sovereign power and mercy of God, that he ends his exposition with the doxology of verses 34 to 36. So in summary, in what we can argue are Paul's three most theologically, doctrinally rich letters, Romans, Galatians and Ephesians, the Apostle revels in the wonder of God's plan to bring blessing to all the nations of the world, Jew and Gentile, through Jesus Christ, by faith in him. Paul sees this in the context of God's unfolding plan of redemption, beginning with Abraham, through the Jewish nation, focusing on Jesus Christ and culminating in blessing for the nations and I believe finally for the Jewish people themselves. He understands this as the great mystery anticipated in the Old Testament but not fully revealed until the coming of Christ and committed particularly to him, Paul, as its preeminent preacher and expositor. He is overcome by the grace of God in granting this responsibility to him of all people who had persecuted the first Christian believers. And he gives all his energies to fulfilling that tremendous responsibility by travelling throughout the empire, preaching this good news and suffering for the cause of Christ. That's why he wanted to visit the Romans. And that's why he wanted to go on from there to preach the gospel in Spain. For Paul, this way of seeing the gospel as the outworking of God's promises to Abraham was fundamental. He reveled in it. It was to him a large part of the glory and the wonder of the gospel. He wanted his Gentile readers to know this and to see this for themselves. Do we, I wonder, share his excitement and his desire for believers to grasp this? So I think there are some important consequences for us in terms of our own understanding of mission and evangelism and how we preach these questions. So I want to draw some practical conclusions under eight very brief headings. Firstly, Paul's understanding of Gentile mission should challenge us to see more clearly how the theme of blessing to the nations runs throughout the Old Testament. I think it's easy 
to fail to note the significance of positive statements in the Psalms, in the prophets and elsewhere about the nations, that the peoples will glorify God and that they will know the Lord's mercy and want to know his ways. Paul's intense understanding of the significance of such statements in the Old Testament for his own ministry to the nations should stand as a challenge, I think, to our own reading and study of the Old Testament and for those of us who preach to bring it out more clearly in our preaching. Secondly, we should learn from Paul to see more clearly where there are continuities between the Old and New Testaments. And though we may disagree on the details, uh, we can, I hope, agree that with regard to what I've identified as the central um, content of the blessing to the nations, justification by faith in Christ, there is clear continuity. But I do wonder how much that is appreciated in our congregations, how much it is understood that Old Testament believers are justified by faith in Christ as we are, or how much an old-style dispensationalism has in fact gripped uh, many in our congregations on this issue. The justification, Old and New Testament, is the same. It involves forgiveness of sins, the imputation of Christ's righteousness to the believer, and that's central to Paul's mission. Thirdly, looking specifically at the New Testament, I think Paul's approach challenges us not to flatten out the Jew-Gentile distinctions and tensions that are there in the Gospels and in the Epistles. They're easily ignored, I think, in evangelical exposition today. So, for example, the parable of the wicked tenants in Luke chapter 20 can easily just become a lesson in the dangers of resisting the call of the gospel, whereas the Lord Jesus clearly intended the parable as a warning to the obdurate Jewish leaders of the day, as they well understood, as you can see from verse 19. Now, we may well want to apply the parable to warn those who still obdurately reject Christ's teaching of the dangers of that course. I think we sell the passage short, And we deprive ourselves and our congregations of something of the depth of Christ's teaching and the understanding of the context if we fail to bring out the original way, uh, manner in which it was received. So if we work also through the debates in Acts and so many of the epistles about the the terms on which Gentile believers are to participate amongst the people of Christ, we need a, a sound grasp of where these tensions lie and how intensely they were felt. So though we may reject James Dunn's absolutizing of the boundary markers of food, circumcision and Sabbath in our understanding of Galatians, we need to understand very clearly that those were in fact the presenting issues with which Paul was grappling in dealing with the Galatian believers. If we simply ignore these tensions and flatten out the distinctions, it seems to me we obscure the wonder of the inclusion of the nations amongst the people of God and deprive ourselves of the ability to share in Paul's evident delight in that aspect of God's plan for the world. Fourthly, Paul's theology of mission helps us to see that the roots of world mission do not lie in the vision and work of William Carey, wonderful though those are, nor in the missionary movement of the early 19th century or the great push in the early 20th century to win this generation for Christ. We might add that they don't lie either simply in the commands of the New Testament, for example, the Great Commission, vital though that is. The true roots of world mission predate all those things by thousands of years. Paul shows us that they lie at least as early as the promises to Abraham. And of course, ultimately, in the first intimation of gospel promise to Adam in the Garden of Eden. But mission to the nations is and has always been God's plan for the world. 
And that gives us tremendous scope within Scripture, Old as well as New Testament, for founding the imperative of world evangelism and mission today. Exhortations to preach the gospel, witness to Christ, to go to the ends of the earth with the good news, do not have to start with Matthew chapter 28. They need to be rooted much more deeply in the promises of God in the first books of the Bible. A firmer grasp and a clearer sight of the fact that world mission is there in the Old Testament and it's something that God has planned since before the world began will ignite zeal, inspire perseverance and give true motivation to the work of personal evangelism as well as world mission. And so fifthly, we need to learn from Paul that we're to preach the gospel to all creatures not simply out of compassion for the lost nor merely from a desire to see sinners everywhere reconciled to God in Christ, important though those are. Paul demonstrates that the prime motive for preaching the gospel to the nations is that this is the outworking of God's great plan for the world and that the ultimate goal is not just for the good of lost sinners but for God's own glory in Christ. Sixthly, Paul is helpful to us in seeing that mission and evangelism to the nations are grounded in covenant. It's not simply a question then of our obeying Christ's commands to preach the gospel and witness, though of course we should do that. It's more than that. God has by covenant promised that blessing will come to the nations. This is reflected, I think, at the end of Luke's Gospel where Christ tells his disciples that the Old Testament scriptures foretold the suffering and resurrection of the Messiah and that in his name repentance for the forgiveness of sins would be preached to all the nations. Mission and evangelism are covenantal. They're a part of the outworking of the promises of God in covenant. We need to grasp that when we're engaging in these activities we are the means that God is using for the fulfilment of his own covenantal promises. Paul is quite clear in Romans 15 that anything that he achieves in this area is the result of Christ's working through him. It is God outworking his plan from the, before the beginning of the world uh, and we are simply uh, his instruments. I think a covenantal view of mission and evangelism will help us to grasp that more firmly and make us less inclined to attribute fruitfulness in gospel work to our own methods, skills, or approach. Seventhly, penultimately, I believe it's legitimate to see Paul to some extent as an example to us in his admittedly unique role as the apostle to the Gentiles. We've seen how important that understanding of his ministry was to Paul, and we can't follow him, obviously, as an apostle, Nevertheless, I believe there is a sense in which we can regard ourselves also as having a God-given commission to take the gospel to the nations as Paul did. I think we too, legitimately, to some degree, have a Christ-given, priest-like commission to preach the gospel so as to make of the nations a holy offering to the Lord, as Paul says in Romans 15. Paul's commission was apostolic. It was the result of a revelation of Christ to him personally. He was a forerunner, he was a groundbreaker, he was possessed of a God-given authority which we do not share. I admit all of that. Nevertheless, we are, it seems to me, to follow in his footsteps in continuing this work. And there's no reason to my mind why we can't view that work in a similar way as he did his own, as a holy priestly commission to make the nations an offering to the Lord. Finally then, Paul's theology of mission and particularly his view of the end point to which it's all leading, the fullness of the Gentiles and the ingathering of the Jewish people, gives great encouragement 
in the hard and often apparently unproductive work of evangelism. Because by rooting it in the plan and covenant of God, Paul shows us that the work is certain to succeed. God's promises do not fail. Christ fulfills his covenant. He has planned from eternity to save the nations. He will do so without any doubt. And a conviction of this, based on Paul's understanding of this great task, will surely provide hope to those who labour, together with incentive, zeal and optimism in the work. Let us learn then with Paul to be amazed once again at the great and surprising plan of God to bring blessing to the nations of the world by making his son a curse for sin. And let us give ourselves afresh to the great work of proclaiming in his name repentance for the forgiveness of sins to all the peoples of the earth so that our God may truly be known as the God who by faith justifies the nations.